So, back to football temporarily. Not for too long, I promise, for those of you that don't like it. I would like you to put your hands up in the air if you are confident that England are going to win the World Cup. Are we sure? Nobody's confident that England are going to win the World Cup. No eternal optimists here. I'm going to use this first few minutes of my talk as a bit of therapy. I'm going to share with you some of my experiences in the past, which probably explains why none of you put your hands up when I said, do you think England are going to win the World Cup? The first World Cup I can remember was back in 1990, Italia 90. I was a young lad, nine years old, and England had a good team. And we did really, really well. Uh, can anyone remember what happened to us in the end? Yeah, we lost in the semi-finals to West Germany, as it was back then, on penalties. We were really, really unlucky. We hit the post in extra time and everything. But what that did was that instilled in me a confidence in the England football team that we were going to do really, really well, that we had a good team. So any time a major tournament came round, because that, I'd had that um, example as a young lad, I thought, we can do it this time. We were really close. Well, I remember. And then we failed again and again and again. And I kept this optimism, kept it, kept it going uh, right up until the early 2000s, till 2002 and 2006. That's how optimistic I can be about things. When then we had a really, really good squad. For those who know anything about football, you know, we had Beckham, Scholes, Lampard, Gerrard. We had Michael Owen up front, Alan Shearer around that time as well, maybe a bit earlier than that. We had a really, really, really good squad from front to back. And we were rightly one of the favourites to do really, really well at the World Cup. And what did we do? We failed again. And from then on, every time we've really gone into a tournament, I have not had any hope or trust or confidence in England to do well since then. I still love football and I'm still excited about it. But to me, there's something lacking. There is not that excitement and confidence that I should have in my team to do well going into something that is the pinnacle of the sport. Because past experiences have taught me not to trust them. It's the question of trust and confidence that is actually at the heart of the passage that we heard read to us a few moments ago by Steve. And it's a question that is at the heart of the Christian message. It's something that makes the Christian faith stand out from any other major world religion. And that is what you're going to put your trust and confidence in. We live in a world, don't we, where we are constantly told, be true to yourself. Be true to who you are. Trust yourself and your own feelings. Now, these are not new ideas and new thoughts. And these are things that humankind has been battling with throughout the history of the world. And it's something that the church has had to uh, battle with itself right 
from its very early days right up until today. And this is what is going on in this passage tonight. It's a question of who we are going to put our trust and confidence in. Are we going to put it in Jesus? Or are we going to try and take some control and confidence back onto ourselves? So, with that kind of background, I'd love you if you have closed your Bibles to have them open as we go through this passage. It's really uh, quite an exciting passage. It's a brilliant passage, in fact, in my opinion. So do, do keep it open. And we're going to kind of unpack a little bit about what is going on in this passage and what it means to us today. The first thing I want to say that this passage says is that trusting in ourselves is a dangerous and infectious way of thinking. We're going to go straight in. We're going to ignore verse 1 to start off with. We're going to go straight in to verse 2. Paul says this, Beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. For it is we, who the church, who are the circumcision. What is going on in there? What on earth is Paul talking about here? Well, what's going on is uh, originally, so I mean by originally, I mean before Jesus, God's chosen people uh, had to do certain things to be marked out as God's chosen people. It wasn't just about being born. Some of it was circumstantial. You were born in, uh, into sort of the, the race of Israel, but you could also do something to become part of the race of Israel. And that involves things you actually have to do yourself. And one of them, involved uh, males being circumcised. This was like a physical thing that if you believed in God and were part of God's people, you had to do this to be included in the family and to, uh, yeah, and to have the blessings that came with it. There were other rules and regulations on top, but the circumcision was one of the major things that marked Israel out uh, as different and, and, their, and their faith in God. And what was going on in the early church was when the news of Jesus spread and who he was and uh, what he had, uh, had done, is there was a real mixture going on in the early church of Jews and Gentiles. Gentile is just a posh word for somebody who isn't a Jew. So we're, unless you're Jewish here, you're all Gentiles. So there was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. And there was a conflict going on about... What was the extent of what Jesus had done? What did that mean with all the other rules and regulations that that the Jews had? And what the Jews uh, or or the Jewish people uh, uh, did is they said yes to Jesus, but we can't forget the rest. So we have to do everything else on top. It's great that you believe in Jesus because you can be part of God's family like us now. But as well as believing in Jesus, there's all these other things you have to do, like be circumcised. There was what we call this Jesus plus mentality. You needed to believe in Jesus, but also you needed to do something else as well to be saved or to be part of the family. 
And this is what Paul is using these strong words in verse 2 against. He is arguing against this mentality. It was such an an issue in the early church that actually all the early disciples got back together and had a big discussion about it. We're told about this in Acts 15. And they decided unanimously that you did not need to do anything else to be part of God's family other than to accept Jesus. And I'm personally really, really glad that they decided that because becoming a Christian, uh, having to be circumcised, would not, I can tell you, would not have been something that I'd have looked forward to. But that aside, let's go back to how Paul describes this way of thinking, this Jesus plus mentality. He says, beware of that. And people that argue that try to add something onto Jesus. They're dogs, evildoers mutilators of the flesh. Dogs back then were not um, the nice pets that we have today that follow us around and we take them on nice walks and are are loyal to us. They were wild uh, scavengers, often dirty, disease-ridden, would eat the the throwaways, would eat the litter and the rubbish. They were often aggressive as well. And you could catch diseases from them if, if they bite What Paul is making abundantly clear here is that that Jesus plus mentality is something that is dangerous, is to be avoided and shouldn't have any part in the church's culture. And Paul then goes on a bit more and shares his experience of his life in, uh, yeah, from verses, uh, it's about halfway through verse four. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Paul was somebody that had had all the things that people were saying in this plus part of their Jesus equation. He had both the circumstantial stuff, you know, the the race that he was born in, and he didn't have any control whether he was going to be circumcised on the eighth day or not, but he was. But he'd also lived a life. He'd gone for it fully, gone for learning the scriptures, understanding what it meant to, to, to follow the rules and the regulations of doing this and that, to have righteousness. Righteousness is just right standing before God. He, he, he'd done it all. He says he, he, he was faultless. He'd had all the things that these people were saying that early Christians needed to do and more than them, he says. And what was his conclusion about all these things they were saying uh, to add on to top of Jesus? He says, verse 8, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. And then he goes on at the end of it, I consider them rubbish. Paul has known both worlds. He's had a world where he's tried to do everything right in his own strength to do it on his own and he's known it with Christ and he's compared the two and he said doing it on your own 
in your own strength, even if you do it perfectly, is rubbish. And I just want to pause on that point there. And we're just going to do a little, learn a little bit of uh, New Testament Greek here. The word rubbish in Greek, I'm not very good at pronouncing it, um, is pronounced something like, the, like this, skubalon. And it's actually the only time this word is used in the Bible at all, in the New Testament. And the only other occurrence we have of uh, this word from writings around the time are both from um, uh, uh, Greek or Jewish uh, historians, uh, one called Josephus and one called Strabo. Josephus uses the term when he's writing about the conditions in Jerusalem uh, during the Jewish war with the Romans when the city was under siege and it was just carnage and awful and death and people starving and going on. That's the word the historian uses to describe the conditions in that city. Uh, the other use is uh, a historian uh, describing what happened in a city when its sewage system failed. This word is kind of, kind of um, uh, means that which is cast out for dogs. And as uh, some people have said, it's, it's a mod- I don't know if this is true or not, but it's a modern-day swear word in Greek as well. This word is related to excrement. What Paul is saying when he's saying what this Jesus plus mentality is compared to knowing Christ, he's saying it's a big pile of steaming dog poo to be polite. We translate it rather politely in our uh, Bibles as either rubbish or garbage. So why is this an issue in the early church? And why do I, I think this is something that, if I'm honest, we all struggle with from time to time? I think it's something we struggle with because we can't believe that Jesus is enough on his own. We want to have to do something on ourselves to to justify and try and earn our relationship or our saved status with God. We like to bring things back under our control and have some influence over them. And so we try and do all these things to, to add on top of Jesus. Um, Paul is saying, no, don't do that. That's not a very uh, good and pleasant experience if you go down that path. It's all about trusting and having confidence in what Jesus has done for you. So how does this mentality show itself today, perhaps? Perhaps we try and make bargains with God. I've done this a few times. God, if you just do this for me, I'll do this. Or God, I've been really good here, so therefore can you do this for me? What we're doing when we have that mentality is we're saying we're trying to earn something from God. We're trying to do something to have right standing or to get closer or with God. And that go, that's this type of Jesus plus mentality. We have to do something on top of it. Now, I'm not saying we don't 
need to not, to, it doesn't matter what we do, because we do, it does matter what we do. But what I'm saying is, what we do is not going to make us right or acceptable with God. We don't need to do anything else to come to God other than trust in Jesus. We are okay with God no matter what we've done or haven't done as long as we have faith in Jesus. We have right standing, righteousness before God because of him. It is fantastically freeing news and something, like I said earlier, is totally different from the way the world works. You get what you deserve. You get what you earn is a lot of the way uh, our, our culture thinks about it. But that's not what the Christian faith is. We get what we don't deserve, a free gift, freely given, God's grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. So, how do we know if we have faith in Christ? What are the markers? How can we have confidence in this? Now, Paul, uh, in these verses, from verse, in verse uh, 3, he kind of just says, the markers of being in the church is worshipping in the Spirit and giving glory to Jesus, basically. You get the Holy Spirit, it was like um, later in one of his other letters, Paul writes, the Holy Spirit is like the seal of God's ownership on us. He puts in our heart as a deposit and a guarantee of what is to come. And we receive it simply by believing and trusting in Jesus, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if we glory, boast, praise Jesus, it says that's the sign that you are the circumcision. You are the people of God now. You don't need anything else. We jumped in at verse 2, didn't we? Going to jump back to verse 1. Finally, I just want to pause and point out that first word there. This is a aside. I just found it amusing when I said that. Paul says, start chapter 3, finally. He's only halfway through his letter. So if anybody ever criticizes me for saying finally and then going on too long after I've said finally in one of my talks, I just want to say it's biblical, okay? I'm just following Paul's example. Anyway, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. It is not a, a, to write the same thing to you is not troublesome for me. It is your safeguard. Uh, Rejoicing in the Lord is one of Paul's sort of themes in this letter. I can't remember how many times he says it, like 11 or 12 times in this letter. He says, rejoice in the Lord. It is your safeguard. If we are in the Lord, we can have joy because it is totally freeing because we know there is nothing that we have to do ourselves to be in the Lord other than trust in Jesus. And that brings great joy. And that is why we can rejoice in the Lord and why Paul can rejoice in the Lord even though he is in absolutely uh, rubbish circumstances. He's in prison at the moment. He's uh, lost a lot of the um, 
but all the other things that he talks about losing, everything he's lost from his past, his great upbringing, perhaps the respect, he, he was held by the important people in the towns and this and that. He's lost it all, but he's still rejoicing because he knows he is free and alive and he has confidence in Jesus, that Jesus can be trusted even in the darkest and worst of situations that he is going to find himself in. Rejoicing in the Lord is something that protects us and keeps it safe. It is his safeguard. Whenever I hear the word safeguard, I always always think of um, safeguarding that we have today um, with uh, young people. I don't know if you know this, but the Church of England safeguarding uh, guidelines and regulations. I looked this up this week because I knew they were very long. They run to 75 pages an awful lot of things uh, that we need to do, rightly so, to keep children and vulnerable adults uh, safe, to protect them from harm. Paul is saying here what we as people need to do to keep ourselves safe from harm is not 75 pages of things that we do or don't need to do. It's simply about trusting in Jesus, in who he is and in what he has done. And when we do that, we are transformed by it. The things we do in our life, we don't do to earn his respect or to earn his favor. We do them because he has met with us and we live our lives thankful And in response to that. So, I just want to leave us with this challenge. Where is it, perhaps, in our lives that we or you don't have full confidence in God? Where is it where you try and take things back under your control and make life a bit easier for you? Do you have that mentality when somebody perhaps walks into this building looking a little bit different from you and you avoid them? You think, oh, they can't really be part of this church. They might love Jesus, but they don't look like us. Or maybe you think, I'll be all right with God because I've gone to church this week. That's okay, that's made me all right with God. Well, our faith is not about what we do. It's great you're here, by the way. But I hope you're here because you know what Jesus has done for you, not to try and gain favor with God. Knowing and trusting in what Jesus has done for you is the best decision anybody can ever make. It's a tough path to walk down at times because we all want to go back into taking control for ourselves. But it is an awesome awesome path to walk down. And when I made that decision, it was the best decision I've ever made in my entire life. And I honestly, I've said this before, I don't think I've said it for a while, I don't actually, I, I have never met a Christian who has said they have regretted putting their trust in Jesus. So we need to keep going down that path. Keep trusting in Jesus. Jesus is not like the England football team. 
that you're going to have hope in and is going to fail to deliver. He is totally trustworthy. He is not going to let us down. And we can live our lives totally confident and expectant that he is with us and that there is nothing that is going to happen in this life that can separate us from that and stop his promises of him being in us, with us, forgiving us, and that we're going to be with him for eternity. What a great passage. What a great reminder from Paul. I'm really pleased I got a chance to just talk with you about it tonight.